What happens when numerology becomes astrology? When the percentile that somebody gets on the GRE has a decisive role in determining whether that person gets into this or the other PhD program? Or the number of publications that a student has has a decisive effect on the kind of job they get? Why have we become an academic field that places so much emphasis on numbers on the certainty that comes from them as markers of promise, rather than reading for promise, promise that comes from ideas and rarely comes from numbers. About this and many other interesting topics is this conversation with the amazing Hector Amaya from the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Southern California in this episode of El Café Latinx. What's the experience of being a Latinx scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx communication across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. Today, we have a very, very special guest. I'm truly honored to be joined by Hector Amaya. Hector is Professor of Communication and American Studies and Ethnicities at the University of Southern California. He's also director of the Annenberg School of Communication at USC. And he, in addition to that, is Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Access. He's a very, very prominent scholar and a very, very accomplished administrator. Before arriving to USC, he spent over a decade at the University of Virginia, where he rose through the ranks from being assistant professor to being full professor and department chair. He's held visiting memberships at the most prestigious universities in the country or in the world as well. Uh, he was a member of the Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton. And he was also a visiting scholar at the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral and Social Sciences at Stanford University. Hector is author of three book monographs. The most recent that was published by Duke University Press in just April of this year is called Trafficking, Narcoculture in Mexico and the United States. Hector got his undergraduate degree in uh, Universidad Autónoma Metropolitana in Mexico City, in Distrito Federal. He then got a master's at the University of Calgary in Canada and a PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. He is recipient of many honors for his scholarship and is truly one of the most influential Latino scholars in the field. So Hector, thank you for joining us and taking time to talk to us. Um, first question is, how did it all begin? You know. How was the start of your journey uh, to lead you to become the scholar and the administrator that you are today? Uh, thank you, Pablo. I, um, I think like many people in my position and in our profession, the answer is often a book. <laughs> and I love that about my profession, the fact that actually many of us actually uh, speak about a particular book having caught our imaginations, our sense of uh, uh, profession, you know. And the, the book that did that for me, the one that began uh, taunting me, uh, is uh, the book, uh, it's a very small book by Roland Barthes called Mythologies, which I read when I was um, before my master's in um, 
I had been an avid reader of different types of uh, philosophy and critical theory throughout my undergrad and even when I was uh, in my high school. Uh, but that was the first time I read uh, Barth. And if you have read mythologies, you know, first of all, that Barth does something else than simply um, uh, producing literary theory. Uh, he, he, to, to someone like me, he showed me uh, a profession, the profession of the cultural critic in a way that I've never seen it before. I have read Frankfurt School stuff before, and I gotta tell you that they never captured my imagination in the same way. And it was Roland Barth and uh, these little book mythologies, which by the way, here and there, I still teach it. Uh, I find it equally powerful today as it was back then. It opened up a way of thinking about the world in a professional space. And the possibility of actually arriving to that space, of course, when I read it, uh, I was between degrees, I had finished my undergrad, and I was working mostly as a designer. Uh, unsuccessfully, I was unemployed very often. <laughs> and I was, I had five years of, of uh, away from the university, if you wish, trying to be a designer. And uh, it is in these years that I actually I read this book and, 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 and I began thinking about the possibility, can I do that kind of situation? Uh, the book was a taunt. It was not simply an invitation to think, it was a taunt. Can you become that person or a version of that person, of course? And, you know, obviously one doesn't dare to, to imagine that one will succeed, but one at least actually starts moving towards that possibility, you know? So I applied to graduate school uh, shortly after that. Uh, and I, uh, well, uh, the rest is history in a sense, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's fascinating. Why, why do you think it was that book? Why do you think it was Bart? It had the quality of simplicity and complexity that it is really hard to achieve. Um, I, I confess I haven't been close to achieving today. I, I think I tend to err on the side of complexity without ever having the clarity that to make a text readable, broadly speaking, but um, analytically complex, philosophically committed. And uh, I think that was the combination of things, you know, so the Barth can be read uh, at the surface level as a cultural critic. And, uh, and then you dig in a little bit deeper, you know, and he is one of the key post-structuralist thinkers that is forcing us to reimagine the role of communication and, uh, and life, you know. Uh, his his works or famous uh, articles like that of the of the author, for instance, and his questions about uh, about uh, pleasure and like and the and, and the and the pleasure of the text. I'm thinking, uh, you know, uh, a lover's discourse. All those books were small, and and it's and it's funny because sometimes we think that books that are bigger are better. But Barth will give you a lesson on publishing by giving you uh, books that are roughly a hundred pages and can really transform your 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 your, uh, your engagement with the world. Fascinating. Um, so you read that book, you had that moment, you decide to go to grad school. Mm -hmm. um, why Calgary? I, I live there. Ah, yeah. My first migration happened uh, when I was, uh, uh, when I moved from Mexico to Canada. My parents had been uh, uh, in a process of economic descent in, in, in my hometown in the north of Mexico. My father was going to lose his job. And when I was in uh, Mexico City doing my undergrad, they decided to move to Canada and uh, start a life there. Eventually I caught up with them and I became a, a, an immigrant in Canada first. 
and I left in Calgary. I was trying to do what I had been trained to do, which was my first degree in design. And um, I struggled a lot. And uh, I had to reimagine uh, myself and reimagine my future. And graduate school was a way to do it. So I applied only to the University of Calgary, I remember back then, because it was my local university. Mm -hmm. And um, they gave me an opportunity. Uh, I, I, I've been in many committees of uh, graduate committees that we see files all the time, you know. Uh, and I can tell you my file was uh, probably the worst file they had admitted at the time. I'm serious, Paolo. They took a great risk with me. They didn't know what to make of me to begin with. They brought me for an interview because I was local. They brought me for an interview with five professors, I remember. And they asked me, what have I read? What was my training? And uh, they liked the answers. And so they uh, overlooked everything else and uh, took a risk. And uh, so I was, uh, I was given a spot, which speaks, uh, I will say, one of the challenges we have today, you know, as an administrator is to convince faculty to take risks. We tend to think right now in admissions that, uh, that uh, numerology will, uh, is, 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 is astrology or something like that. <laughs> it's like numbers are numbers, you know? People are people. Let's separate them, you know? And, uh, and it's funny because you introduced me in a way that it is very weird for me to get used to the idea that I'm the scholar I am today. I succeeded in many ways but I am the result of someone who took a huge risk on me to, to start my master's degree. So can we stay on this for, for, for a minute? So do you think that the, the numerology trend, as you have called it, <laughs> um, has increased over the years, say over the 10 or 20 past years? Um, do you think it's in the same? Do you think it's been decreasing? What's your take on, on sort of numerology and um, admissions and selection, not just for graduate school, but for you know, junior level positions, uh, for promotion, etc. Um, what's your take on that? I think the, the obsession with ranks that the universities have had for the last couple of decades has changed the uh, the discourse about um, about the public value uh, of universities and had made us obsessed with uh, improving our ranks, which is a number, by the way. It's talking about the numerology. Um, this obsession seeps into everything we do at universities these days, and every department is painfully aware that uh, they're uh, they are being ranked against other departments and. Uh, and this comparative uh, uh, war, uh, which is an empty war, what are ranks, you know? In this comparative war, we tend to uh, find, try to find strategies that will minimize the risks of failing in any way, any, any way or form. Every student we take in has to have a clear-cut promise of success in ways that are antithetical to the way that we should be reading files and, 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 and reading for promise, not calculated in a GRA or, uh, or an SAT, but reading for promise. And uh, promise comes with ideas. Promise doesn't come with numbers, of course, you know, and we know this. It's simply that we receive so much pressure that it is really hard to simply say no to the numbers, you know. So right now we are in the middle of the controversy of whether we'll permanently get rid of the GRE in the university world. You know this because your institution is like mine, you know, we are trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that we are having an opportunity because of the disruptions to let go of the GRE or at least make it optional, you know, for a little while. Uh, COVID has been helpful in that sense, you know, in the sense that we are being forced to adapt. And I, I, I'm, I'm happy about that, that way of adaptation. 
Right, because also, I mean, numerology tends to favor the most established players, right? It reinforces existing inequalities because of those who can, you know, get those numbers usually have had more opportunities to practice, to perfect uh, the art, etc. And in that sense, it, it is antithetical uh, to the openness that universities uh, should have. So. In, in thinking about uh, groups that uh, have not had the opportunities of those at the very top um, of the pyramid, so what, what, what strategies can we enact as, you know, as scholars, as administrators, um, thinking about uh, different groups that have been, you know, have not had the same opportunities to level the playing field once COVID is over, right? I mean, right. What, what can we do, Hector? I think the the um, we can first of all uh, in terms of admissions overall you know we have to read files we we cannot be actually uh, concentrating so quickly on numbers that uh, that will uh, create uh, the process a process that, that is easy to do by the way is really easy to discriminate based on numbers okay if you don't have a GRE of X you're out. That is the easiest thing. I mean, you don't need a, an admissions committee for that. All you need is a, an, an Excel sheet. It's read files, um, reduce the, uh, the power of numbers or eliminate it. And uh, I would say take a, take a page from the committee that invited me into the profession and do an interview. Uh, it is, it is soften that some, some characteristics of a person do not come through in, uh, in, 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 in numbers. Sometimes even the paper, uh, the writing actually is, is, is unclear. So an interview can help us. But in general, you know, the, the emphasis on, on reimagining and readdressing the need to clarify the public service of institutions uh, as opposed to the rank it is as important uh, as ever. And I think we fail to, uh, to, uh, to center our minds into actually what we are doing for society uh, sometimes when we are pressured to be succeeding all the time in all these types of competitive ranks. Uh, I don't know if that answers the question, but it, at least it gives, it gives the conversation a direction in terms of, I, I think there are already practices that can be, can be done. I think we can improve, uh, and uh, uh, hopefully, you know, these are things that 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 can be done. You know, and I, I, it is this, the the effects of the type of uh, discrimination that happen because of numbers are felt the strongest by minority communities in the United States. You know, and uh, we have to find ways to make stop making our universities. Uh, the 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 actors of a structural inequality they currently they currently are. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Now going back to those to that degree in Calgary, um, how was the experience for you? Had you done when you were an undergraduate? Did you do all of your studies in Mexico? Or had you done like a study abroad uh, period? No, I, I did all my studies in Mexico. Yeah, I, I didn't, so when I did my, my graduate work, for instance, I was relatively new to English. I learned my English when I was, I learned English when I was 23. My first airplane happened when I migrated from Mexico City to Vancouver. And uh, I couldn't understand even the signs in the plane. Uh, so my English was zero at that moment. And so, I, I began doing my graduate work three years after that moment, but three years is hardly sufficient to be able to do, uh, to keep up with graduate work, I can tell you that, especially writing. And my first set of papers came back red, basically. My English writing was terrible. I wanted to quit. And simply because my, my peers convinced me to stay, I, I stayed. But it was deflating. I was I could not understand how is it that uh, I felt so good in the classroom. I like to participate. I felt I got the material okay, you know, but my writing was 
eons behind which is another thing that actually happens when we are considering uh, minorities and for graduate school. The writing is sometimes eons behind. And what happens when we actually encounter this in our sample, our, our writing sample, you know? Are we to translate this into this is the capacity of the person? It's a very tricky proposition, of course, you know, and, uh, and, and writing becomes essential to the profession but you know some of us had the good luck of being trained from early on some of us haven't and uh but yeah it's, it's, it's uh the entering graduate school was a huge challenge for for that reason and others but that was that was an important one but you decided to stay in graduate school and then you went yeah. to Texas. yes yeah no, I, I, I decided to stay and uh, my professors were also were communicative with me. They, they, they acknowledged, they separated my writing from my ideas and they made me feel that I had, a, I had to improve my writing, but I had a, a, a shot, you know, and um, I applied to PhD programs, you know, and uh, Texas uh, was one of the ones that attracted me the most. At the time, it was directed by John Downing, mm -hmm. who is uh, you know, an international uh, communication scholar. And um, he, uh, he was very attentive to international students like me. I also think that it is partly his leadership in Texas that brought me and other Mexicans and other Turkish students who, who to, uh, it was a great environment for to, to be an international student and, and it had the imprint of John Downing. And so, um, and again, it is, it is we, we talk about this capacity of administrators to leave their imprint in a place, you know, and how are, are we making decisions? How are we making the uh, selections, you know? Uh, yeah, I went to Texas and it was, uh, it was a great uh, experience. Austin is a great place to live, but uh, the program was just uh, very challenging and satisfactory and the community was fantastic. Uh, once I found out the Latin American Studies uh, program was gigantic, as you know, this is UT Austin, okay? Once I, I found them, also I could complement my, my craving and my missing Latin America uh within my studies you know so i had i had my professional um identity within the rtf department of of, of, of uh, ut austin but my parties and the social life i lived included always the latin american contingent which were famous because you know only the parties from the african studies i studied students and latin american students had dance any other party in graduate school at least in, <laughs> in Texas, people didn't dance. So, uh, so it was incumbent upon you to, if you're interested in dancing, to find the Latin Americans and the Africans, we would dance. <laughs> Which is very important to academic life. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so Hector, now since you brought up the issue of you know Latin America and the Latin American community at UT Austin, which is you know the, the institute there is the largest in the nation, probably the mm -hmm. most famous one. Um, so you are somebody who, in your scholarship, um, sort of encompass both the Latino or Latinx you know experience in the U.S. and also the Latin American. Mm -hmm. uh, experience and your work speaks to both. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about you know um, you know your experience doing that? Um, you know challenges and opportunities that arise from navigating across these two areas that sometimes are joined, as in your case, but many times they are not. And some people just do Latin American research; other people do just do Latinx research. Yeah, the I've been. Um, it took me a while to do uh, the Latinx U.S. Latinx uh, scholarship. You know, uh, when I first came to the U.S., I, I identified as an international student. I came from Canada, and I would introduce myself as a Mexican Canadian, 
people would laugh at me. Uh, eventually, I became comfortable saying I was a Mexican-American, you know, but it took a few years. My own life was always, um, uh, I grew up in spaces that were liminal, you know, I'm from the north of Mexico, from a border state, and so my uncles would drive back and forth between my hometown and L.A., where they would work for a few years and then come back with a brand new Mustang or something like that. <laughs> so the space in which I grew up was always liminal. Uh, I consider Mexico my, my, my home nation, but I am more of a border person uh, in terms of the regional way in which I imagine myself. So, um, that I do work then that 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 deals with uh, with Latin America and with the Latinos has become normal to me. It's very hard, but this this has become normal. I I had um, I feel that I have to learn a lot every time I'm writing a new project because it typically has a different social context. But I feel also that I have no choice that, uh, you know, I did my first book was on Cuba and attended to, to my political growing up as a teenager in Mexico. I think perhaps I, 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 I would I dare to say that for many of us who are in the profession right now in Latin America as professors, we grew up idealizing Cuba. We, the Cuba played a huge important role in our imaginaries. As, an, as intellectuals, and even when I was a teenager, I already had huge admiration and specific ideas about Cuba. So my first project developed around, around that dream, in a sense, to know more about Cuba, to write about Cuba, to learn about Cuba, to visit Cuba. And I, lo I, I love that nation, okay? And I, love, uh, I loved, especially clearly at the time, actually, um, what the nation was doing. My feelings today are more ambivalent, I will say, about the nation as a government, the Cuban people I adore. Um, but then when I, when I was doing that project is when 9-11 uh, when, um, happened, and then uh, the rise of anti-Latino nativism grew exponentially in the US. And so I was seeing my communities, communities that I was already identifying with. Uh, under threat, and I, I, so my second book was in a sense a response to that emotional uh, feeling of allegiance, that I'm one of them, and it is the first time I say I'm a Latino, you know why I know I am a Latino? Because this hurt me personally, the way that nativism is speaking about my people. It was really clear to me that they had become my people. So I write this book, you know, out of, um, it's, it's, it's a project of the heart, you know, and, uh, and so, um, but the heart has many places. And so by the time I was finishing that book, the violence in Mexico was skyrocketing. So I wrote uh, trafficking for also as a project of the heart. I just could not not write about the violence in Mexico, which is, is so painful to be in, 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 in to, to call Mexico home. It's so painful to call it home and to see it uh, becoming what has become, you know, in a, a place where I have to think twice about when I go and where I go to visit, you know. Even doing the research in Mexico, you know, it's the first time my university, I, I, I began to, to write when I was at University of Virginia. It's the first time I had to answer questions to the security people at the university. They were concerned about my security. So we had to establish protocols of um, intellectual protocols that would allow me to have a, a project that would keep me safe, especially if I wanted to do field research. That's Mexico. And so um, I, I say the difficulties come with the fact that every project has forced me to learn a lot. And I feel novice every time I write a book. I feel that I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I certainly was unprepared and it took me a while to, to learn to write my second and my third books. It's, it took me a while. But it is now part of my, 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 
identity. I loved Canada too. And the book I'm writing right now uh, on anonymity, I call my identity as a North Americanist, which is not very common, not very used, not very popular, and perhaps it shouldn't be, okay? But I recognize that because I lived in every country and I have a deep love and respect for every country in the North American continent that I should might as well call myself that. And so in the book, In Anonymity, I'm using more Canadian examples for the first time. And it's been a joy to, to complement my, my own learning about my continent by forcing myself into research there. So one could say then, Hector, that um, when you write your books, you write your identity as well, it seems to me. Absolutely. Right. You not only express it, but you write it and you probably rewrite it. You learn about yourself in ways that you hadn't perhaps thought before. Would that be fair to say? I think so. I think so. I certainly, you know, uh, there are like different personas that become active when I'm writing about these different projects, you know. Partly is because you are thinking about a group of people, a set of ideas, an intellectual milieu that has particularities, you know, and in uh, uh, the in the midst of writing about uh, citizenship access, the the one on Latinos and nativism, I was uh, deeply interested in the politics of Latinidad and the U.S. and connected um, in uh, in my persona was very much. Uh, uh, crafted by those uh, connections with with the Mexican project also it changed a little bit you know and um, it's not simply that I actually now I'm more in contact with with the Mexican Academy but also that my my uh, imaginary has expanded by the learning I had to do in order to write about Mexico I grew up in Mexico but I never studied Mexican history for instance it is it is one of those tragedies, you know, of our public school system in Mexico that we need to do a lot of extra learning to learn well. Um, every time that happens, a different part of you actually uh, is activated. So my professional life is definitely, uh, right now feels that I, I have to wear different hats and I have to tactically deploy my different identities in different contexts and be be mindful of the fact that I I, I, I have this multiplicity in me. I'm not only the one person. Perhaps every immigrant is like me, but it's certainly every immigrant that actually has commitments to different peoples that are different commitments and sometimes they are contradictory. The one that actually has to be also cautious about, about, about the hat one, one wears and what is proper about our commitments, where are the lines and the boundaries of these commitments. Writing about the border is a classical example, you know. How do you write about uh, about the border, you know, in a in a way that uh, makes clear my allegiances to the immigrants, to Mexico, to the U.S., to Canada, to Latinx communities here who are ambivalent about immigration? Sometimes, that's right. So, how do you make this? clear you know uh, it's not easy it's not easy and but it does let me sometimes to sound very moderate in my views by the way I'm someone who I have a hard time having a, a strong opinion about anything I could never for instance at one point I was interviewed about whether I was in, in, in favor of eliminating borders for instance and I had to come clean and say no I so my public voice has to be one that attends to this multiplicity and sometimes it comes out as moderation when when it is actually a really complex calculation you know that i have to attend to the fact that i care for a lot of peoples and communities and intellectual projects you know very interesting so um would you say that 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 sort of complexity and that sort of the moderation that comes as a result of that is one way in which your positionality as a latino person as a latin american person has shaped how you do research 
how you write about your research and your, your academic uh, you know, career in general? Do you think that's one way in which being Latino can manifest and can shape uh, a career in the academy? Definitely, you know, I think our positionality is always um, evident in our writing and intellectual projects. I think all of our positionalities do the same job, but there is a job that is particular to every positionality. The fact that I'm, I identify myself not simply as a Latinx scholar, but also one that has Native American uh, ancestry, very clear, very significant in my own genetic makeup, um, that I have an uh, Indian affiliation, that in Mexico was marginalized too, that I felt marginalized in Mexico and in the US for, for uh, roughly the same reasons, but in a different way. Uh, all of this actually um, translates in, into a particular positionality where you feel that you, you have, those are the areas that give you clarity. You know, when I speak from that, those positions is when I have the clearest degree of clarity. So as someone who attends, as a director, for instance, as a director, I have many students and I, I feel I have to take care of all of them. And that's when the voice of moderation may come out. As a director, I have to take care of all of them. But as a scholar, when I, I'm, I'm just a Latinx scholar from Latin America, I have no shame in calling it as it is. My work is not moderated. I, I, uh, uh, it's not politically moderate. My, my work is uh, trying to puncture holes into, uh, into white supremacy. That is my whole book on citizenship is, is about white supremacy. And uh, my work on trafficking is about the European colonization of our intellectual world, in particular, the category of publicity. So my work is, in that sense, gives me a, lot, a great deal of clarity. Yeah. So um, and, and it is from that position that I write. The moderation is not, is not as much part of my writing as much as my public persona and my directorial uh, uh, role. So in that sense, what, following up from that, what advice would you give graduate students, young scholars about um, things you learn from navigating this you know, space in your multiple personas as a researcher, as a writer, because it's different the information that we gather from what we write about that, right? We don't write about everything we gather, right? I mean, some things, you know, we are not interested in or for whatever reason we write about. And also from your role as an institutional builder, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're an administration, you're building an institution. So what lessons have you learned from your experience that you, you you would like to pass on to the next generation in, in all of these personas like all of them are part of life in the academy perhaps you know the first is perhaps the recognition that one is one can have different personas and our intellectual persona doesn't have to be exactly the same uh, persona that one has as a citizen of a department or a citizen of a school or a college or a university. Uh, as a citizen of my universities, which became eventually the identity that became, I, 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 I embraced as an administrator, I had felt universities very welcoming of me. Uh, they are, they are uh, I think institutions are and a huge need of people who are able to produce high quality work and who are willing to take uh, leadership positions today who are minorities, people like me. And the moment actually speaks to that greatly, of course, you know. So in, in one sense, actually, I learned that actually my, my uh, that persona actually could be, um, I could be a citizen of my university uh, as a Latino, that uh, that 
that I would be welcomed by the institution. In a sense, the institution actually has made the space for us very well. I also learned that to be an effective um, administrator, I had to actually administer everybody, not simply my political ideals. And, and this is something that actually I have learned. Uh, I, I, and I think it's a very useful reminder for those of especially young scholars of who are, what type of administrator you, you, you may, be, may grow up to be if you wish. Uh, you know, as we become more senior in the position and uh, in, in the profession. Now, my intellectual identity itself also shaped my 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 Latinidad. You know, and I will tell you that the 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 space of Latinx studies is so small in the academia that we exist in a very small universe, a citational universe. So. Um, there are few jobs that actually describe someone like me as a Latinx person who does either Latin America or Latinx, I can, I can report to you that, that when I was looking for jobs, you know, early on in my career, any job that was Latinx or Latino studies in one way or another in, in the field, I tended to be a finalist. But there are so few, there are so few. We are marginalized in the intellectual community and our citational, uh, capacity is so much smaller than if you are writing, let's say, about the internet, broadly speaking, you know, that your work, you have to live with the fact that that is the reality. And it is up to others to translate your file to others, but you have to live with that reality. That is the reality of, of being a Latinx scholar today, is our relative marginalization. You know, yeah, right now, next week, you are interviewing uh, Angie Valdivia, you know, uh, she's a phenomenal scholar with uh, tons of experience, you know, and uh, and she may actually share with you also that the, the, the way in which she is cited, broadly speaking, probably is mostly by Latino scholars and Latino students, not broadly in the field, you know. This is who we are. We cite through our embodiments, and it's very sad. So. I think being being a Latinx scholar and, and having a, uh, a, a, an intellectual space, you have to make, you have to be comfortable with that. And um, there are different ways in which one can avoid this. One can be embodied Latinx and do other type of research. That's perfectly fine. But if you are embodied in Latinx and you are doing Latino studies scholarship live with that and I think it's an honorable life, by the way, it's an honorable marginalization. And, uh, but those are the two ways probably that I would, I would try to pass on is, is make your peace with that. It is up to us. So when I'm reading files uh, and I see files that are promising from minority scholars, the citational universe is pushed to the side. I know what citational universe they, they exist in. I'm not going to be comparing them, you know. I'm comparing an A-plus scholar with another A-plus scholar. I'm not comparing here, you know. Uh, so, you know what I'm saying? So one, as an administrator, has to learn to read the files in that way. So Latino scholars, young Latino scholars, don't worry about that. We'll take care of that in translation, if you wish. And, and continue doing the work. It is important and it will become every year a little bit more important than the academy. So that's then a, a follow-up question to that. You are describing how things are now. How, what can we do to accelerate change? Oh my God, it's... Uh, it's such a difficult and important question. I think right now I'm in the, in the, in the, we are benefiting greatly. Whoever wants this type of change, the change that will bring this type of intellectual and embodied diversity to academia. When, whoever is doing this job right now is being helped enormously by Black Lives Matter. It's giving energy to every institution to push forward change. And we have to take care advantage, take, uh, 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 take advantage of that. 
I think it's incumbent upon us. I don't know how, when we'll, we'll have another opportunity to have this broad acceptance of some principles of racial justice within the academy. It may not happen again in my career. This, this, is, this is a time where I, I know I have to actually strike, if you wish, and strike fast. And one has to create the, the, the processes and methods and values and missions that are, however, lasting. So it's important that actually we do this not simply for the moment, but we do it by rewriting the books, rewriting the bylaws, rewriting the guidelines, rewriting the normalcy of our institutions. So right now, the, 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 the move for racial justice has given all of us a huge gift. You know, it, it, is, it, is a, it is a generational gift. It's an opportunity for all of us to actually to push the project of racial equality a little bit further. And uh, perhaps more so than, than in, in, in the last 20, 30 years, that's for sure. So there is hope. It is, yes, yeah, it's, it's giving us hope, it's giving us energy, it's giving us a mandate, and uh, it's giving us an opportunity that one can feel at every uh, stage of the university from boards, uh, which sometimes think that boards are disconnected, they are not, they are very aware of this right now. Presidents, uh, all the way to, uh, to faculty, you know, so this is a, a an unequal opportunity that we have to actually make sure we take advantage of. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So then that brings uh, us to the final question that I ask all the, the guests. If you had magical powers, Hector, and, and could be granted one wish about how you'd like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? I think, you know, perhaps the thing that I see having the biggest impact is going to sound kind of strange to you, but I think, I wish we were better social sciences. And by what, by what I mean by that is not what, you, what first comes to mind. I don't mean actually better, better at quantifying, for instance. Uh, that would be nice. But what I mean is better students of society. I think the communication studies is, is full of uh, intellectual agendas that have things at the center, not people. And uh, we don't often place people at the center of an intellectual agenda. So whoever writes about people, you know, ends up being marginalized in a field that there is uh, basically uh, absorbed or uh, where objects are hegemonic. So it's, you know, it is technology, networks, it's, it's, it's processes, gadgets, technologies, rather than people. So we are a social science that, that has more science than social. We are social sciences with a lot of us don't have much knowledge nor commitment to learning about people, about communities. And the people who do that work so, you know, feminists, uh, queer scholars, Latino scholars, African-American scholars, uh, Native American scholars, we become marginalized. And this is not a fault of us, but actually uh, it's a field that there is uh, uh, bamboozled by things and wishes to be a science when it should be uh, about people. So of all the things that I wish we, we, we changed, I wish we actually were better, better at under, understanding the social as being, and uh, the social is about people. So, uh, but, uh, so that's the one thing that I, I think could have a profound change in the field, in a field that again, I think is obsessed with things. This is fascinating, so do you think that has gotten more pronounced over the past decade or couple of decades? Do you think it's always been like that? Do you see an evolution of some sort or not? No, I, 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 see, I see a recalcitrant, 
sorry, that word is hard for uh, ESL Recal person. I have to say, eh? recalcitrant, right? Is yes. That, yeah. Okay. Okay. No, I think I think we are very unwilling to uh, to understand our um, the way that we imagine uh, curriculum. And uh, you look at the at the classes that are in, in, in the doctoral program at our Western, one of the most celebrated doctoral programs uh, in our field, our own. And uh, you look at the titles, and how many of these titles are referencing communities, peoples, and how many of them are referencing processes. We imagine the field through processes and gadgets. And so. Uh, and I think there is a huge pushback against actually anyone trying to say otherwise. <laughs> so I tell you this because, you know, uh, this is a podcast and, and, and uh, we should have dreams and the dream should be hard. And this is a hard dream to have. Which are the best dreams to have? The only ones. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent, Hector. I couldn't think of a better, uh, most more insightful line. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with us. Uh, thank you uh, for sharing your wisdom. And I invite uh, all the listeners to stay tuned for next week's episode of El Café Latinx. Today we had Hector Amaya from the University of Southern California and the producer of uh, the podcast, Mora Matassi, joining us. Uh, this is El Café Latinx for the Center uh, for Latinx Digital Media at Northwestern University. Thank you very much, Hector. Thank you, Paul. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi. Okay.